word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come before you today and that we can read your word. We can know your character. We can know your plans for this world. And so we pray that as we read this somewhat terrifying part and yet comforting part of your word now, that you would indeed give us hearts to listen, to tremble at your word, and to give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the theme of our passage today is obvious, isn't it? It's the jealous, avenging wrath of God. It's right there in verse 2 at the start of our passage. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his enemies, keeps wrath for his enemies. I wonder what you think of the concept of an angry, jealous God. Uh, You've probably heard uh, people say, oh, I don't believe in the the angry God of the Old Testament. I believe in the, the New Testament, God of love. Perhaps you believe that for yourself as you sit amongst us this morning. For many, many people, the idea of a jealous, avenging, angry God, well, it's simply repulsive. It simply doesn't have a place in the church. Here's what uh, Richard Dawkins writes in his book, The God Delusion. i put the quote on the screen. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, I don't understand all of those words, but they don't sound good, do they? (laughs) But as Christians, we we might not put it so strongly as that, so, so bluntly as that, but I think the fact is, for many of us, we don't like the idea of an angry God. We don't like the idea that God might be just and pour out vengeance on people. We want a God defined by love, by tolerance, by forgiveness. And so in many churches you'll go every Sunday, the theme will be God's love, God's blessing, God's favour. And words like anger, wrath, vengeance, well, they may as well be uh, on the swear jar because they are never used. Books like Nahum, I wonder, have you ever heard a sermon on the book of Nahum before? Have you ever made your kids learn Nahum for a memory verse? Have you ever taught it in Sunday school? Uh, In the early church, there was a guy called Marcion. And what he did was he removed the entire Old Testament and all the parts of the New Testament that he didn't like, all the parts that didn't fit with the God he liked. He didn't like a God of anger. He wanted a God of love, so he just removed the parts he didn't like. And we too can effectively do the same, can't we, as we neglect these parts of God's word as if it was somehow beneath God to be angry and only focus on those parts of the Bible that are warm, 
and cuddly and loving. What do you think of the concept of an angry, jealous, wrath-filled God? Repulsive? Unloving? Unchristian? I wonder if you would ever consider the wrath of God good news. That's precisely how our passage talks about it at the end. Did you notice that? Verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. See, what I want us to see today is that the jealous, avenging wrath of God is actually an essential part of the good news of the gospel. And without the wrath of God, there is no gospel. And in fact, there is no heaven. I'll say it again. What I want us to see today is that the jealous, avenging wrath of God is an essential part of the good news of the gospel. And without it, there is no gospel. There is no heaven. Well, after that long introduction, let's get into the book. Uh, Let's consider verse 1, the background for the book. Chapter 1 and verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, we know almost nothing about Nahum. We know that his name means comfort. And Elkosh was probably his hometown. And that's about it. We know a lot more about Nineveh. Nineveh was the city that Jonah preached to 100 years earlier. Jonah, during the the reign of Jeroboam, somewhere during the 8th century, uh, preached. He was instructed by God to go to Nineveh and to preach judgment against it. Jonah chapter 1 verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. And if you remember, uh, after going through the, uh, being swallowed by a fish and all of that, to Jonah's great disgust, he goes to Nineveh and they repent. God's wrath is turned aside. And Jonah himself is angry with God's mercy and steadfast love. But, just 50 years later, Assyria would return to their evil deeds. They they were well known for the brutality in war. And in 722 BC, it would be Assyria who would actually go and devastate the northern kingdom and besiege the southern kingdom as well. And when Nahum writes a century later, sometime between the fall of Thebes in 663 and the destruction of Nineveh by the Babylonians in 612, God's response is very different to Jonah, isn't it? The theme of this oracle is the jealous, avenging wrath of God. Well, if you're following on the outlines, we have three points to consider briefly this morning. Number one, the Lord is a God of wrath. Number two, the Lord's wrath makes a complete end of his enemies. And thirdly, the Lord's wrath is good news of comfort for his people. Firstly then, the Lord is a God of wrath, uh, verses 1 to 5. And in particular in verses 1 to 5, we're shown five attributes, isn't it, of the wrath of God, which force us to understand God's wrath correctly, because so often we misunderstand God's wrath by comparing it to our own. But here we're told what God's wrath is like. It is jealous, 
It is avenging, it is slow, it is just, it is powerful. Firstly, it is jealous, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps wrath for his enemies. It's a, it's a chilling description, isn't it? Uh, three times there, God is described as avenging, as taking vengeance. But do you notice the basis of his anger there? The first one, God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Now, in most circumstances, when we are jealous, it is wrong, isn't it? Jealous of our colleagues, our promotion maybe, jealous of our neighbor's car, of our friends' relationship, of our uh, brothers' and sisters' gifts in ministry maybe. Our jealousy is nearly always wrong, but there, there is such thing as a right jealousy. And it's the kind of jealousy that you see in the marriage relationship. I mean, you can just imagine if your, your husband started spending time with other women more instead of you. How are you going to feel? You're going to be jealous, I'm sure, angry. Imagine if your wife started to commit adultery with another man. How would you feel? Jealous, outraged. Angry. And it is this right jealousy that God has. God has entered into a marriage relationship with his people, Israel. And so for, the, for God, any attack on his people, any claim to them which was rightly his, well, it arouses his jealousy because he was like a husband, jealous for his wife. So we read in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the earth above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the children of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, for some reason, I don't know what it is, we've convinced ourselves that somehow... God's wrath is the opposite of his love. Uh, I don't know why we think this. That as a loving God, he could never possibly get angry. Just think for a moment. Will not a loving parent get angry with their children? Will not a loving husband get angry with his wife if she committed adultery? Would not a loving God get angry? When his people are reviled, when they are persecuted, when they are attacked. Should not God be angry with the atrocities of ISIS? Should God not be angry with the persecution of Christians? Of course he should. And it is because of his deep love for his people that his jealous anger is aroused. And so we can, be we can be comforted. God is jealous for his people. And we see how that jealousy works itself out. Point B, the Lord is avenging. See, God will not overlook sin. He will give sin its just reward. We noted three times there in verse 2. The Lord is an avenging God. The Lord is an avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance on his enemies. And did you notice who his vengeance is, is meted out on? 
It is on his enemies. It's not God's people that need to be afraid of God's anger. But we do need to be warned. Get on the wrong side of this God. Well, his jealous, avenging wrath will be stirred up. He will give his enemies what they deserved. It was the Ninevites who attacked and destroyed God's people, who laid Samaria bare, who besieged the cities of Judah, who were brutal in their violence. They will not escape the judgment of God. And neither will the Christian. The Christian who is constantly under oppression, slander, persecution, he will not go unnoticed with God. God's vengeance will be poured out on his enemies. But we need to know, point C, the nature of God's anger. The Lord is slow to anger. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. You see, God's anger is very different to ours, isn't it? So often our anger is, is built up for some petty reason. All of a sudden, completely out of control, completely over the top, more often an expression of our own pride and our own selfishness than anything resembling love. I mean, just think. When you get in your car and a person cuts you off, woof, anger, wrath. This is not the God we're talking about here. God is slow to anger. His anger is never out of control. It is always measured. It is always controlled. It is always right. God never overreacts. He is never selfish. He is always righteous. But here's the thing. There is a time when God's patience is exhausted. There is a time when wrath will come. Uh, This verse is actually a quote from Exodus 34. It's um, almost immediately after uh, the golden calf incident at Sinai. Moses asks God to show him his glory, and as God passes by, he proclaims these famous words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And and you can see this character worked out with Israel, can't you? Time again, time and time and time again, they would sin and they would sin and they would sin, and God would forgive, and he would forgive, and he would forgive hundreds upon hundreds of years. But there did come a time when God's patience was exhausted, when his wrath would be poured out, and he sent his people away into devastation and exile. Now, did you notice the difference between this passage, Exodus Uh, 34 and Nahum 1 verse 3. I think you've got the wrong one there. Yeah. Put it up on the screen. There's 
There's no mention of God's forgiveness or mercy here in Nahum. Did you notice that? Yes, we have the slow to anger but, and, and, the, and the not calling people, letting people get away with their sins, but the mention of forgiveness and mercy is just not there. Why? Well, God is slow, but verse 3 and point D, he will be just. He will be just. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, do you see, God had already shown his mercy and love to the Ninevites. He had sent Jonah to them to preach, and they'd repented, and they'd been saved. And he'd waited, and he'd waited, and he'd waited. But 100 years later, they had turned from their, from their repentance. They had turned to their idols. They had turned to their brutality. They had turned against God's own people. And so 100 years later, as Samaria lay destroyed, as the cities of Judah were besieged, well, God's patience with the Ninevites had run out. The time for his judgment had arrived. See, God's mercy will never compromise his justice. God's mercy will never compromise his justice. Yes, he is slow to anger, but the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And so, friends, if you are here today, perhaps as a non-Christian, we're really glad that you're with us and uh, really glad you've been able to maybe be invited by a friend to come here. This is a really important message. I'm really glad that you can be here to hear it. But please can I urge you this morning to take this message seriously. Yes, God is loving. Yes, he is merciful. Yes, he is patient. He is delaying his judgment so that we may turn to him and be saved. But one day, his patience will run out. One day, his anger will be displayed. One day his judgment will fall. The New Testament says the Lord is being patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to reach repentance. But the day of the Lord's wrath will come. He will judge. Now is the time to turn back to him. As the passage goes on, that's when it becomes really terrifying, isn't it? On that day of God's wrath, when his power is revealed, well, there will be no escape from the Lord's hands. No escape from the Almighty God. You see in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And then we see that power expressed. Verse 3, His way is in whirlwind and storm, the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blooms of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. It's a picture of the, the, the devastating power of God. The clouds, the rivers, the fruitful lands, the mountains, the world, all of its inhabitants, they all feel the effects of God's jealous vengeance, wrath, and judgment. 
Now the allusions here, of course, are to Sinai, where God led his people by the cloud, destroyed the Egyptians in the Red Sea, and then descended on Sinai in the midst of lightning and earthquakes. Here is point one. The Lord is a God of wrath, jealous, avenging, slow, just, and powerful. So let me ask you, do you believe this? Is is this the God that you have put your trust in? Or is this the kind of God you find, well, offensive, intolerant, impatient, unloving? The thing is, in the end, what matters is not what we think God is. It is what God tells us he is like. And Nahum tells us very clearly, the Lord is a God of wrath. Well, it brings us to point two. The Lord's wrath will make a complete end of his enemies. The Lord's wrath will make a complete end of his enemies. Listen to those questions in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by him. The answer? No one. No one can stand before this God. There is no escape from an almighty, all-powerful, just and all-knowing God. Well, there is one escape, isn't there? Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. There is hope, isn't it? If we turn from our wickedness, if we put our trust in him, if we take refuge in him, well then he is good. He's a fortress. He's a refuge. If we're here today as God's people, this is not meant to make us afraid. He knows us. He loves you. He's good to you. You trust in him, he is a refuge. You are completely safe from God's judgment. But notice the warning. If we rebel against him, if we persist in rejecting him, There can only be one end. You see it in verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. In verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. The Lord will make one day a complete end of his enemies. His judgment will 
be final. There will be no second chances. There will be no reincarnation to do better the second time. God's wrath will inflict eternal destruction. And as we read on here, we know that at least in the first instance, God has particularly in mind the Ninevites of Assyria. Look how they're described in verse 10. They are tangled like they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counsellor. Now most likely here the reference is to Sennacherib, the Assyrian general who inflicted that devastation on Israel in 722 BC and then proceeded to besiege Judah and Jerusalem until 701 BC. The Lord declares, there will be no escape. Like, like thorns, like barbed wire. You'll be caught. There'll be nowhere to run. Like drunkards, they will totter about unaware of the fate that is coming on them. Like a fire in a dry bush, they will be utterly consumed. Their vile and idolatrous behaviours, God says, will go down to the grave never to rise again. And this is, of course, what happened in history. On 612 BC, 50 years after this letter was written, the Babylonian army walked into Nineveh and utterly destroyed it. The Assyrian Empire fell, never to rise again. You'll meet Jews today, you will not meet Assyrians. Again, let me ask you this. Is this the God that you believe in? Do you believe that God has a day of final and complete judgment? For again, the the same God of the Old Testament is is the same God in the New Testament as well. Yes, Jesus spoke of love. No doubt he did. But more than anyone else in the whole Bible, in fact, Jesus too spoke of the reality of hell, of a day of eternal judgment. Here is just one verse from Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to, to go with two hands to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you believe that? That the God of love has a day when he will execute final and complete judgment. Do you believe that if your non-Christian friends and family do not turn to Christ, there is a day of judgment when they will be sent away from his presence to eternal destruction? If you know that, if you believe that, Will you speak to that grandmother about Jesus? Will you share the gospel with that 
colleague or classmate? Will you take the risk of sharing the gospel to that person even though it may cost you dearly? In the light of the judgment day, all our pursuits of career and money, relationships, success, well, they're all completely relativized, aren't they? All those things matter very, very little in the light of the wrath of God. There is a day when God will call ISIS to account. There is a day when corruption will meet its fair judgment. There is a day when God will judge the person who reviles the Christian for speaking against same-sex marriage. There is a day when God will call every person to account who has set themselves in hostile opposition to his rule. And on that day, God's wrath will be final and complete. He will make a complete end as he sends them off to eternal destruction. We like to believe in a God who never judges, a God who only ever forgives, God who only ever blesses. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who is really there. The Lord's wrath will make a complete end of his enemies. But if we really stop to think about it, we would realize that the jealous, avenging wrath of God is actually good news. Without the wrath of God, there can be no gospel. There can be no heaven. We're at point three. The Lord's wrath is good news of comfort for his people. I mean, after all, that's what Nahum's name means. It means comfort. And that is why he receives this oracle, to comfort his people. Look at verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. See, God's people had suffered terribly at the hands of the Assyrians. They were a seemingly invincible foe with their, with their horses and their armies. But God declares to his people, these invincible foes will afflict you no more. The Lord's wrath on his enemies secures salvation for his people. Now again, look how verse 15 puts it. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. I mean, would you have ever classified Nahum chapter 1 as good news? Would you have ever considered the news of a jealous, avenging, wrath-filled God good news? Well, if that is us, then it means that we have completely misunderstood the gospel, isn't it? That is what good news means, isn't it? Gospel. And here we're told very clearly 
The gospel is only good news because it includes the jealous, avenging wrath of God on his enemies to save his people. Uh, it came across in our New Testament reading, didn't it? From 2 Thessalonians and chapter 1 and verse 5. I wonder if you'll turn there with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. I've got it on page 989. And the other Bible is 1191. Isn't it remarkable how Paul puts it as he talks about this devastating judgment? Let's pick it up at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Here we see, isn't it, all the themes of Nahum fulfilled in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, Christians suffer. They suffer then and they suffer now. Now, These past few weeks, I've been posting many articles on Facebook against the the same-sex marriage bills that have been going through. And time and time and time again, from my Facebook friends, what comes back is abuse, reviling, slander. In this country, you live as a Christian, your Bibles will be confiscated. Churches will have their crosses pulled down. Many will face persecution from their family, from their workplace, and even from the government, just for naming Jesus as their Lord. In our workplaces, we are mocked. In our families, we're often opposed. And if we turn on the news, we just see more and more the persecution of Christians. Syria, Iraq, Nigeria, China, North Korea, Afghanistan, the list goes on. The good news of the gospel is that there is a day when the Lord Jesus will return and grant relief to his saints. There's a day he'll rescue us from all of these sufferings. A day when God's vengeance will be poured out on those who do not know God and who do not, know, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day, do you see, when they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, in the end, there can be no heaven without judgment. Why is that? Because heaven can only be heaven if sin is expelled once for all. If sin is still there, then how can it be heaven? There can only be true peace when the enemies of God have been destroyed. Isn't that right? 
And so well like the Thessalonians, we may be comforted that one day sin and death and the devil and every one of the enemies of God will be no more. And we will dwell in glory with God for all eternity. See, in the end, whether God's wrath means judgment or salvation really depends on which side you are on. Are you God's enemy? Or are you one of his people? Well, the reality is that all of us, in fact, deserve eternal judgment. All of us have rejected God. All of us have followed false gods, followed ourselves. All of us deserve to suffer that eternal destruction away from the Lord and away from his presence. But praise be to God that in his great love he opened a way of escape. On that cross 2,000 years ago, there Jesus hung there bearing this devastating, jealous, avenging, just wrath of God in our place. What great love he would do that for us. He bore it all so that all who take refuge in him can be saved. What a God to serve. This is the good news of the gospel. It is that that God's final and complete judgment has not yet fallen like it has with Nineveh. God is still being patient. He is still being slow. He is still waiting so that any who, who turn and put their trust in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. They will be with him in glory. And isn't that good news for us? Isn't that comforting? And so if you're here today as a non-Christian, again can I urge you, turn to Christ as your Lord and your Saviour before it is too late. Turn to him before his judgment falls. And if you are one of God's people, be comforted. Press on. In the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, keep trusting. Keep rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep proclaiming this good news. Because it is wonderful news. And God will one day set everything right. Praise God. So as we finish, let me return to that question that we began with. What do you think of a God of wrath? Unloving? Unchristian? Repulsive? Well, in the end... Because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you see the wrath of God is very, very good news. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do have a day 
when you will judge all sin, when you're jealous, avenging, just and powerful wrath will be poured out. We thank you that our sin matters to you. And we thank you that you have given us a way of escape from this wrath. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place, who bore this wrath in our place so that we might be saved. And we thank you for that future day when all the enemies of God will be destroyed and we will live in perfect peace with you in glory. And so we pray that you would help us to proclaim this good news to our family, to our friends, to our colleagues, all those who do not yet turn to God and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us the courage to speak. Help us to point them to the cross. And we pray that you would indeed have mercy and that you would save many out of your wrath. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.